America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Yeah, everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Oliker, speaking to you, as usual, from Brussels. This week's episode uh, was produced in partnership with Stiftung Mercator, who are generously supporting several War and Peace episodes, of which this is the very first. So to kick off this co- collaboration with Stiftung Mercator, we are discussing one of Crisis Group's flagship publications our EU watch list for 2022, which has just launched. So every year towards the start of the year, we set out a list of 10, in this case 11, countries where action from or supported by the EU could help save lives. This year, the EU has a lot to keep it busy, both close to home and further afield, from the Russian troop buildup near Ukraine to the worsening of ethnic tensions in Bosnia, the EU has found itself reckoning with an increasing risk of conflict within Europe itself. Meanwhile, elsewhere, deadly fighting and humanitarian disasters in countries across the world, from Afghanistan to Ethiopia to Venezuela, threaten to claim many more lives. As a central actor in the conflict prevention sphere, indeed as an organization that is positioned part of its role as doing things to help mitigate conflicts, we ask, well, what can it do? How can the EU take action to keep these conflicts from escalating? What can they do to address their devastating humanitarian consequences where they're already underway? So we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about what this means for the EU's role on the global stage and how it's changing at a time of mounting great power competition. And we're going to have that conversation with two of our crisis group experts, Lisa Musil, who's our senior EU analyst, and Giuseppe Fama, who's our head of EU affairs. As you can tell from their title, they both work a great deal with the European Union and subsidiary organizations working to encourage the implementation of crisis groups analysis and to improve crisis groups analysis and its policy recommendations. So Giuseppe and Lisa, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So Lisa, tell us what countries made the watch list this year. Thanks, Olga. So we started off the watch list uh, front and center with the Ukraine crisis in our introduction that was written by our new CEO and President Comfort Arrow. And then on the list, um, I give you a quick rundown and then later we can go into the details. On our list, we have Afghanistan, then in the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia and Sudan. In the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, Tunisia, Lebanon, then Bosnia-Herzegovina, as you mentioned in the introduction, Colombia and Venezuela, and Kashmir as well. So that's quite a long list, and it's quite a global list, right? It really does underline that the European Union is a global actor. But the Ukraine crisis itself, with a Russian military buildup, the crisis continues as we talk with both the buildup continuing and diplomacy continuing, but the EU hasn't had a huge role in it, right? The EU is crucial if further aggression does take place, if sanctions are to be imposed, it doesn't happen without the EU. But the negotiations haven't been the EU. They've been the United States and to some extent, NATO and EU member states. 
So what does that mean? We've got a record year of humanitarian need, perhaps. We've got a lot of places where the EU is active and trying, but does the fact that there is a crisis in Europe where the EU isn't playing a big role mean that the EU isn't doing so well in a new great power competition? Thanks, Julia. Well, it, it is quite telling of the difficulty that the European Union has in uh, finding its own space uh, among uh, the relations between major powers. And indeed, many of the issues that are affecting the European Union are more uh, regularities in relationships between major powers rather than the changes occurring in the world politics today. We're able to observe it very much throughout the whole pandemic, and that is particularly the case for the US relations with the United States with China and with Russia. With the US, uh, after the election of President Biden one year ago, uh, the EU had revamped hopes for increased multilateralism and coordination with Washington. And that has largely uh, happened in many, in many areas. But while the change of tone of the United States brought better prospects for global norms and institutions, the Europeans had little chance other than following some of the decisions that the United States had taken in, in, in conflict hotspots. You mentioned issues in coordination on Ukraine and Russia, but of course, the key case that is perhaps more glaring is the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan that gave the EU a concrete chance to ease humanitarian suffering, promote stability, and indeed put in the EU at the forefront of the international approach with the Taliban government, but also confirmed the European policymakers' fears that the new U.S. administration will bring more continuity than change in its foreign policy also with the European Union. So what is the EU doing in Afghanistan? I mean, looking at the headlines, whatever it is, it's not enough. Yes, you have a good point, and this is um, why we highlight it as well in the watch list. The EU has an interesting role uh, to play now. Of course, we have a big humanitarian crisis, and the EU and uh, the member states collectively are the biggest humanitarian donor in Afghanistan and therefore play an important role. Their humanitarian office was basically back in the country after the Taliban takeover very quickly, so they have a presence on the ground and do very important work. We argue that more is needed, that humanitarian aid is not enough, and that it is important to also support state structures, specific areas, for example, health, education, rural development. The EU has already taken an interesting step of going one step beyond humanitarian aid in launching support that they call Humanitarian Plus. But so far, this is all channeled via the UN and international NGOs. And we think that the EU could go even maybe one step further and taking the lead in providing direct support to state structures by really distinguishing between the Taliban as a movement and the Afghan public service uh, sector, which is still important to maintain. The EU is well placed to do that because they have concrete benchmarks developed on how to engage with the Taliban. They have recently established a small diplomatic presence on the ground. So they're one of the few Western actors who have a better sense of the situation on the ground and they are in dialogue with the Taliban in Doha. So we believe that they are well placed to take a step forward in the support. And what about in the Middle East, in Tunisia, in Lebanon, uh, Israel, Palestine? What can the EU do more of in that historically very difficult part of the world? Tunisia is a key priority for the European Union. It is its main trade partner in the region and it enjoys deep cultural, social and economic ties with several member states. After the Jasmine Revolution, the EU has invested heavily to make it a prime example of democratization in North Africa. 
But things changed last year when President Kais Sayed invoked Article 80 of the Constitution to suspend the Parliament, dismiss the Prime Minister, and introduce a state of emergency. Now, the EU fears that the political instability may risk destabilize further the whole region and severely affect the EU itself. In December, President Sayed formally announced a roadmap for a political transition, but that would extend the state of emergency and allow him to concentrate power for another year. There is a big risk for one-manship here. Since when Sayed invoked Article 80, street protests broke out periodically, both in favor and against the president's move, dangerously polarizing the society. Meanwhile, he resorted to a more populist discourse to divert attention from the country's economic and social issues. The country's GDPs shrank by more than 9% in 2020, and now Tunisia can barely cover the salaries of the public sector workers, and it even risks not being able to repay external loans. There are old ingredients for a major economic crisis and the country needs massive financial support. But that is also a controversial point because Tunisia is already a major recipient of EU aid, uh, although the country has moved away from the economic principles and overall priorities that guide and condition the EU's external financial assistance. But despite these challenges, the EU should not stop its bilateral economic cooperation with Tunisia and should use the current crisis to leverage financial resources to produce change in Tunisia's economy and in society. And in our watch list, we, we recommend how to do it. And in Lebanon, instead... This is where we have perhaps one of the most explosive situations in the region. We have had a long-standing uh, complex of multiple crises overlapping, and now the greatest driver of instability in the country is basically the shattering economic crisis that's spiraled uh, out of control since late 2019. The result has been very disastrous for the country, especially for the people in economic terms. The average family's purchasing powers plummeted with about 80% of the population living in poverty today. And in this context, addressing the massive financial sector crisis and the crashing public debt will require substantial foreign support. In order to do so, the country needs to reform its banking sector, improve its transparency and accounting practice, and also trying to root out uh, corruption and, and waste, uh, which are uh, among the recommendations that the European Union has been uh, pushing forward. But one of the most severe impact that the, the economic crisis is having is on uh, the Lebanese uh, security forces, because with the increasing inflation, the budget of the security agencies and the military uh, has been greatly devaluated. Uh, and that means also that Lebanon has much less capacity to uh, pay uh, the salaries of the personnel. It continues in a scenario of increasing political polarizations and institutional deadlock uh, that can only uh, aggravate the situation. The EU and its member states can try to solve most of the root causes causing uh, Lebanese instability. Chiefly, they have to provide direct financial and technical support to key state uh, institutions, and particularly those in the security sector, to ensure that they can make uh, payroll. One other area they would need to look at is also to continue pressing the political establishment to deliver the elections, to advance on the elections that are scheduled for 15 May, that risk being delayed because of the political statement in the country. A delay will likely worsen the political paralysis of the countries and increase also the alienation of Lebanese citizens from, from the systems. And although elections are unlikely to transform the whole environment, they may at least produce some change from new social forces getting into a political system that can help also 
overcome the deadlock that we've seen uh, over the past uh, two years. Wait, so what does the EU do about that? Well, uh, recently, the European Union had created a framework to impose sanctions on politicians that were obstructing uh, democratic processes, including elections, and were basically putting them forward also to deter those politicians who wanted to postpone the elections. Certainly, the EU should continue pressing the Lebanese politicians to hold the elections on schedule and keep signaling the readiness to use their sanctions uh, against uh, the potential spoilers and continue to offering also incentives to the population to try to ease the economic hose that can be also used by the political establishment to reproduce the statement. And Israel-Palestine, what are our recommendations for that very prolonged and protracted conflict? Indeed, it is prolonged and protracted, but since the latest wave of violence in April and in May 2021, the conflict has largely fallen out of the world's radar in the European Union agenda too. Uh, but the root causes and the triggers for violence and the conflicts are very much uh, alive. The status quo is increasingly untenable and can only result in more violence and the denial of fundamental rights, particularly to the Palestinians in the occupied territories and within Israel. The EU and many member states reiterated their objective to advance towards a negotiated two-state solution while condemning the violence taking place and the settlement policy. But an effective resolution in the conflict would require a whole paradigm shift, which so far is unlikely. The EU High Representative Borrell said the situation in Gaza in particular, a long become unsustainable and reiterated calls for a political solution. But not much came afterwards. In order to reverse the situation, the most realistic immediate need is to prevent the conflict from becoming worse. And so they need to mitigate Israel's de facto annexation of the occupied West Bank. Uh, firstly, by keeping on pressing uh, the government to support the renewal of the Palestinian political landscape. So they must keep pressing to put an end to the construction and home demolitions and the state back violence of settlers. But should also push them to refrain from expelling Palestinian residents from East Jerusalem and change the status quo at the Holy Esplanade. Well, and also press to rescind the state terrorism designation that they, that they attribute to six Palestinian civil society organizations that played a key role in delivering support and relief to Palestinians. And instead, push for uh, intra-Palestinian reconciliation and encourage the Palestinian Authority to reschedule elections, protect and expand the space for the civil society, and also publicly distance the EU from the Palestinian Authority's repressive uh, practices on its own opposition. One of the main instruments the European Union can use in this context is its financial power. You know, collectively, the EU and its member states are the largest donors to the Palestinian authorities that are also an important partner for, for Israel. So, for example, uh, condition the entire European cooperation with Israel and the Palestinian Authority to the objectives they just mentioned. Uh, and for instance, by excluding all forms of financial support that can benefit uh, illegal settlements on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian end, for instance, by conditioning uh, aid to Palestinian reforms. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and I am talking to Lisa Musil and Giuseppe Fama about the new crisis group EU watch list for 2022. So Lisa, we've got also a lot of EU activity on the African continent, and we've got an EU-African Union summit coming up on the horizon. What are our watch list priorities for the EU in Africa? We, of course, have 
many, many countries and conflicts in Africa that, that we raise regularly on our watch list uh, publications. This year, we specifically focused on two situations in the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia and Sudan. Of course, very different situations, but I'm just going to cover them now together to explain specifically the EU's instruments that they have and that we recommend the EU continuing to use. Of course, we insist on the importance of diplomacy and supporting the uh, diplomatic activities in the region on the one hand in the context of Ethiopia to find a way to end the conflict in the Tigray region, which has in the last year become the deadliest uh, conflict in the world, and in Sudan to help get the democratic transition back on track. The EU has a special representative for the Horn of Africa who is extremely well-connected and well-respected in the region and has an important role to play in being in touch with all the different sides, with the local actors as well as with the regional and international actors. So we do think she can play a very important role in both situations in continuing that back-channel diplomacy and specifically also working with the African Union to support these processes. The other important tool the European Union has is, of course, financial assistance. The EU is an important donor in both of these countries where the economy is in a very difficult situation and uh, the EU can use its aid as leverage in both of these situations. In Ethiopia specifically, the EU has taken a strong stand when they suspended budget support at the onset of the Tigray conflict and uh, putting some political asks forward to unlock this budget support. And we think the EU should continue to do so, to continue suspending the budget support until certain conditions are met. In Sudan, we think that if the transition gets back on track, the EU could also condition its new development assistance and budget support specifically to certain conditions to help get, keep the democratic transition on track. And in Latin America, our priorities are Colombia and Venezuela. Giuseppe, could you talk a little bit about what it is we think the EU can do in those two situations? Yes, although Latin America is farther from the traditional uh, priorities that the European Union has had in its foreign policy, it has become increasingly more active and relevant to help shape a peaceful path for both Colombia and Venezuela. In Colombia, they have been instrumental in securing the 2016 peace deal with the FARC, and since then there have been hopes for a stabilization of the country. However, the peace nowadays is more and more fragile, especially in the countryside and rural areas because of the unreformed rural economy and the growth of illicit trafficking and the weakness of state institutions that are basically paving the way to armed groups. Violence is pretty much set to worsen also for the next year. Parts of the peace accord that were meant to be implemented in this area uh, were supposed to, uh, to curb the appeal of the illicit economy and the way this economy is also feeding armed groups. Local frustration in rural populations in this direction is also increasing the capacity from armed groups, in particular the so-called FARC dissidents, to recruit new people. Uh, since the start of the pandemics, many of these violent groups have tightened their controls on rural regions and increasing the number of attacks against the security uh, forces. And this violence has been targeting increasingly more local activists and the social leaders that, that have been the face of the dramatic violence pattern in the country. Meanwhile, on the one hand, the armed forces struggle to adapt to this new configuration of the conflict uh, as they were trained to use old combat tactics against the FARC, which are no more relevant for this change context. And the political establishment is now busy also looking at the presidential and congressional elections, 
that would take place between March and June. In this context, the European Union and its member states can do uh, quite a lot because they enjoy high level of trust within the government, civil society, and also the conflict-affected communities. And to contain the likelihood of more violence, uh, they should urge all candidates to recognize that the implementation of the 2016 uh, peace agreement is a priority, especially when it comes to reforming the rural economy and bumping the political system that were supposed to constitute central pillar of the implementation of the peace agreement. They should keep advocating and devoting also more funds with a gender focus and a specific ethnic focus on those chapters of the peace accord where implementation is lacking. And drawing from the experience of their support in other countries, particularly in Bolivia and and Peru, they should also help develop uh, new systems for coca crop substitution, which is vital to on the one end, supporting the livelihood of, of poor farmers, but also for curbing the drug economy, which is sustaining the activity of farming groups in Colombia. Venezuela's political deadlock remains the main obstacle to peace. The country is still immersed in a complex humanitarian emergency due to the standoff between President Nicolas Maduro and that increasingly fermented opposition. In almost a decade, Venezuela's economy has collapsed, bringing the poverty rate over 90% and provoking a mass exodus of about one in five Venezuelans. Externally, the U.S. and some of its closest allies continue to recognize Juan Guaido as the country's legitimate head of state. But his authority over the opposition has waned, especially since contested parliamentary elections in December 2020 restored Maduro's control over the assembly. The failure of of Guaido's strategy of forcing Maduro out through external pressure ended up undermining himself instead. The opposition decision to participate in local and regional polls in late 2021 despite Guaido's objections, has increased his own isolation. Uh, meanwhile, pressed by economic collapse and US sanctions, Maduro offered a narrow political and economic uh, opening uh, late last year, with a slightly improved electoral playing field and more relaxed state controls uh, over the economy. In August 2021, uh, Maduro returned to the Norwegian-facilitated negotiations, signing a memorandum of understanding with a delegation from the opposition. But little was agreed after that. The EU has been very active since the crisis escalated and co-leads the International Contact Group on Venezuela. Uh, the country is also a personal priority of the High Representative Josep Borrell. The EU decided to observe the November 2021 uh, local and regional polls and is well placed to advise building on the findings of the electoral observation missions. We recommend them to maintain contact with all genuine opposition groups and their external allies to help them unite uh, around a strategy centered around free and fair elections in 2024 in exchange of a phased uh, lifting of sanctions. And at the same time, they should engage Maduro's government and its foreign allies to determine which incentives may help agree uh, a phased restoration of representative politics. Not least, the EU should substantially increase aid both to alleviate the conditions of Venezuelan migrants in the region and for the humanitarian emergency uh, inside the country especially uh, looking at those issues that disproportionately affect uh, women and girls. So thank you. And then in South Asia, uh, Kashmir was the conflict that um, the watch list identifies where the EU can do more. Lisa, can you talk a little bit about what that means? Of course, Kashmir might not be the obvious candidate. Many people might be surprised that we put it on the list, but we want to use this watch list also to keep those conflicts on the radar 
that easily fall off the international headlines, but are still very important to keep on the political agenda. And we raised Kashmir specifically because it involves India and uh, Pakistan, and the EU has um, strategic relations with both India and Pakistan. Regular dialogues and summits, um, specifically with India, the EU is specifically relying on India also to, or hoping that India emerges as a regional counterweight to China's growing influence. The EU is often stressing that the EU and India are the two biggest democracies in the world, but at the same time, it should also use these platforms to raise the um, issues of rights, um, human rights, and the human, social, and security costs of India's action in Kashmir. Um, on Pakistan, also the EU is uh, implementing a strategic engagement plan with Pakistan, which involves regular dialogues, such as security dialogues, in which it can also raise the situation in Kashmir and push Pakistan to take action against pan-jihadist groups operating from its soil. So even if it is relatively far away from Brussels, we do still think that the EU can use its diplomatic relations in a situation like this to raise the case of the situation of the people there, insist on the rights of the population, as raise issues of abuses against journalists and activists, and also specifically insist that foreign reporters and observers can go back into the region to see what is going on there. And closer, closer in to the EU, uh, we have Bosnia. So in the Balkans, you know, at least for a very long time, the EU strategy was to make things better, partly through enlargement and engagement. But uh, the enlargement part of this seems to have largely stopped. And the Balkans have become a little bit more exciting in recent years. Bosnia was particularly fraught with crisis this year. Is there room for a new approach from the EU within its very own neighborhood, including in Bosnia? Thanks, Olia. The crisis in Bosnia is particularly relevant for the European Union as it threatens not only the stability of the country itself, but also the wider region and therefore European Union member states directly. So we recommend the European Union to seek to mediate disputes between Bosnia and Croat leaders, trying to broker a compromise that can ensure that the Croats will be able to choose their representatives or national office in the upcoming elections. They should seek to dissuade the Serb separatists by making clear that the Serb entity will be not recognized, isolated uh, diplomatically, and that if it would secede from Bosnia, it would be put under harsh sanctions by the European Union. And then it should make clear that uh, after the elections, European actors will support an inclusive, locally driven constitutional reform process that can help move along the line of the previous commitment to support ending international supervision on the country. And lastly, should violence escalate, Europeans should advance contingency plans to reinforce the EU military mission to stave off a potential violent conflagration. So... We've been talking about all of these crises and the EU tools that we're talking about seem like pretty much the old tools, right? Sanctions, diplomacy, pressure. And I kind of want to go back to what we started with, that in Ukraine, the EU isn't at a lot of these important tables, though it's going to be crucial to any sanctions approach. And I keep thinking, you know, that the European Union in and of itself is a bit of an experiment, right? It's supposed to be something that is different from great power competition business as usual, where everything is militarized, where everything is sort of fits this traditional model of might and power and competition for power and for influence. 
And I want to raise the question, particularly um, with the EU trying to figure out its future. It says it's going to change things. It talks about a strategic compass, anti-coercion instrument, defense integration. Does all of this mean that the EU is going to start behaving more like a traditional international power because its new approach hasn't worked out so well? Or does it mean something else? Yeah, very good question, Olga. And um As you mentioned, there is a process right now going on to find maybe some answers to these questions specifically of the EU role within this world that seems to, you know, directed by the big power competitions. Um, and so at the moment, the EU is developing this strategic compass, which um, should be adopted uh, next month in March. And It's basically an attempt by the European Union to, on the one hand, make a threat assessment of understanding what are the threats that the European Union is facing, and also then come up with an action plan to make the EU a bigger global security provider. So it is a very interesting exercise and very important, I think, at this stage of the EU's foreign policy yeah, status at the moment. There are interesting elements, I think, specifically in the action plan that will take a bit of time for member states to agree on, such as um, rapid deployment force, um, which would be um, a big step in terms of security and defense integration, for example. We think it makes sense for the EU to look at expanding its military toolbox and look at ways to, to strengthen its position. But at the same time, we would also caution that this should not direct the EU away from its traditional foreign policy tools, which, as we see in the watch list and in many of our crisis groups' uh, publications, the countries we work on are still very much needed when it comes to mediation, conflict diplomacy, and peace-building work. So, as we see in, in many of the cases of this watch list, for example, military tools will not help to address these complex crises. So, Expanding the toolbox makes sense, but very important to keep conflict diplomacy really at the heart of the EU's foreign policy. So Giuseppe, what are your thoughts on how the EU can do this better going forward? Thanks, Olia. There are two interesting developments that are coming up, which look rather at the leverage that the European Union can have as an economic and financial power. One is the way they're using sanctions. And it's very much as a consequence of the fact that the European Union and its member states collectively are starting to a privileged sanctions as a foreign policy tool. There are good and bad aspects about this tendency, uh, but one thing that we have noticed also looking at how the European Union fits into the great power, uh, into tensions among great powers, is difficulty in advancing in the, in the debate over sanctions when you're discussing big actors like Russia or China, for instance. That is why the European Union is thinking about basically working around the, the challenges it has in its own internal debate by using you know, broader tools or a sanctions regime which that have a global scope like the European Union human rights sanctions regime, uh, the so-called EU Magnitsky, to include other features, for instance, uh, include individuals that otherwise they would not be able to sanction with a country-specific sanction package. You know, think at Russia and what the European Union cannot do around its own sanctions regime in this, in, in this conflict. Another one, is the debate that the European Union is having to add teeth to its trade and developing what now goes by the name of anti-coercion instrument, which is basically a set of regulations that the European Commission has proposed to the Council and the Parliament to limit the impact of economic pressure coming from great powers that can be at odds with the European Union and basically enable them to implement investment restrictions 
post tariffs and trade curbs or have export controls against countries that are trying to leverage their economic power. Think at, at, at China and the way it has basically tried to reverse the decision of Lithuania and Slovenia to establish closer diplomatic relations with Taiwan. These are true of the, of the ways the European Union is thinking of moving forward. But as with the defense tools, the, although it will be helpful that the EU advances in this direction to shore up its global role, as we have been observing in the watch list, it will be important that the European moves steps rather towards strengthening its capacity into peacemaking and conflict diplomacy, not to lose sight of what is actually effective in overcoming conflict and crisis situations globally. Thank you, Giuseppe. I mean, it sounds to me like uh, the EU wants to increase its own economic coercive power and decrease its economic coercive or its, its vulnerability to others' economic coercion, which is understandable. But I think, as you say, the question of how does this actually work is a very important one. We are sadly quite out of time. But um, Lisa and Giuseppe, thank you so much for coming on and talking um, through the EU watch list for 2022 and um, for really unpacking. I mean, there's there's so much more that we could talk about here. So thanks for giving, uh, giving the audience a taste. Thank you, Olya. Thank you, Olga. If you'd like to read more, you can read the 2022 EU watch list in full, and it will go through all of the themes and countries we were discussing today. That's available on our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can also find more material specifically focused on Europe and its neighbors on the Europe and Central Asia pages and on all of the other countries on the appropriate regional pages uh, just down the left-hand side of the website. For more as it develops, follow Crisis Group and all of us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. I'm at Olya Olaker. Giuseppe is at Fama Nel Mundo. And Lisa is at Lisa Musiel. Uh, you can check us out also on Facebook and Instagram, where Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Also, if you have enjoyed this podcast or if you have thoughts or suggestions, give us a shout on Twitter or wherever you are online. You can also email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you are listening to this through your favorite podcast provider and they enable you to leave ratings and reviews, please do that. Uh, we do keep an eye on those and try to respond as we can. War and Peace is a partner in the network of podcasts about Europe, uh, Europod. You should check out the others. And I want to, as always, thank our producer, Bull Media, and our podcast coordinator, Finn Dunbar-Johnson, who prepares uh, for each of these and makes sure that they go smoothly. Big thanks to, again, Stiftung Mercator for their support in producing this episode. We're looking forward to more collaborations with them. And of course, huge thanks to you, to our listeners. I am very much looking forward to chatting with you once again in just about two weeks. But for now, goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. <laughs>